Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Today, we have a classic history episode for you, and it's one that we've been wanting to share with you for a long time because it talks about a person who is a cannabis legend, a person who is a music legend, and a person whose influence on culture can still be seen to this day, I'm talking, of course, about the one and only Peter Tosh. Yeah, this has been on our list since we've had a list. This is getting into one of the weediest places in the world, which is Jamaica. And we have a great discussion of the history of cannabis in Jamaica, going back before the Rastafari movement, talking about that movement, and then, of course, how that movement and cannabis influenced reggae music, not just in Jamaica, but became an international phenomenon, as did Peter Tosh. Yeah, that's right. And today we have the honor of having Naimbe McIntosh, who is the youngest daughter of Peter Tosh and the founder and head of the Peter Tosh Foundation, which continues his fight for cannabis legalization, equal rights, and an end to the brutality of the criminal justice system. Absolutely. And while this episode is full of highlights gotta gotta do a new weed pun every episode (laughs) as per contract maybe been overdoing it a little bit lately but uh gotta gotta have at least (laughs) one per episode so plenty of highlights of course the recording of the iconic song and album legalize it is the great moment i think to bring out of this episode but we should also say there's a lot of oppression or as peter tosh would say downpression yes peter tosh was no stranger to punnery loved a portmanteau that guy yeah he would turn a lot of words like we're against the system into we're against the shitstem definitely not looking to do a posthumous pot pun battle with peter tosh uh (laughs) (laughs) And do just want to say lots of highlights, as we said, but a a lot of overcoming oppression in this episode, not just Peter Tosh himself, who was many times beaten brutally by the police for his advocacy for cannabis and other issues. But Naimbi, our guest, will also talk about her brother, Jawara, who was a a musician under the name of Tosh One, the youngest son of Peter Tosh, and how the cannabis laws very, very recently, the very laws his father was fighting against, um, brought him to a a tragic end on this planet and reminds us that this work of Peter Tosh and all of us continues. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of parts of this story for this man and for his family that are incredibly tragic. And it all comes from a place of fighting for what they believe is right. And I think that we see that mark in the global influence of reggae music on cannabis culture to this day, right? Like when you hear reggae music, you know that there's cannabis nearby or at least cannabis-friendly people nearby. And that is an absolutely iconic legacy. I know a lot of people who are probably cursorily familiar with reggae and they're like, oh, right, Bob Marley, One Love. But behind that easy facade there was a war going on. And the man at the head of our side in that battle, the man who was leading our front, was Peter Tosh. And we all know it because the song Legalize It is an anthem for our cause, always has been, 
always will be, and is probably the number one anthem. I mean, there's been plenty of rap songs since then that take up the mantle of fighting for cannabis justice, but legalize it just says it all and is also just a banger. Like, I mean, let's admit that that song (laughs) is just absolute heat. So we're very excited to bring you this episode today. It was a very enlightening and stimulating conversation and just a huge thank you to Naeem Bey. All right, so before we get into it, we just wanted to thank everybody who's supporting us on Patreon. We really appreciate you. We will keep bringing you exclusive bonus content. Of course, we are a weekly show as of this year, so if you support us on Patreon, you get a video version of Moments in Weed. You get to look at our stoned pretty faces while we do the episode. And if you are interested in supporting us on Patreon, please go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, get signed up. And also, stemming from our recent episode in which I tried to highlight the importance of the humble ashtray in all of our lives. Uh, Right now, we're trying to ride this hashtag, show us your ash holes. We want to see where you're putting those ashes, all right? And please be careful how you spell that hashtag. We cannot be responsible for the responses you get if you miss a crucial H in hashtag, show us your ash holes. Well, while I have I have no idea what Bean's talking about. Never been a never been a great speller. Uh, just show us your asshole. You know what I mean? Just just do it. Uh, you know, on a whim. Uh, but yeah. So uh, we're gonna try to keep it going because, of course, the ashtray is an important part of all of our lives, and we're all gonna end up in there one day. A huge, huge, great moments in weed history. Welcome to all of our new supporters on Patreon who signed up this week. Some of you are about to get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly. All of you are now a part of our Weedly... (coughs) All of you are now part of our (laughs) Weedly episodes every Wednesday that are on Patreon in video form. At a certain point, it's not even English anymore. <laughs> it's, it's just an amalgam language. It's, it's old. It's like Esperanto. It's old English with those <laughs> random E's off the end of the word old, and then I moved it into the middle of the word Wednesday to create Wednesday, and that's why when you see signs now, it's just O-L-D, because I... Well, thanks for clearing that up, Bean. I'm, I'm definitely less confused than I was before about my grasp on our, our secret language that's uh, that's developing here on the show. I love it. <laughs> well, we're about to get a little more confused, so we will up that quotient even further. But first, just if you want to join the party, please sign up for our Patreon at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. Long name, easy to remember, greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a fat bowl packed up here, ready to go for this episode. Bean, how about yourself? Yeah, I'm going bowl as well. I've got one out of the archives that looks a little bit similar, not the same as the pipe that the great Peter Tosh was smoking on the cover of that iconic Legalize It album in that iconic, beautiful field of cannabis that was for so many people, I think, the first time they saw a positive image of cannabis growers and cannabis farms and not like a bunch of cops standing next to a bunch of plants trying to act like hard asses because they're fighting a plant. 
but a champion of this plant saying legalize it and then telling us many, many specific reasons to do just that. Yeah, he's like, it's good for this. It's good for that. Some call it this. Some call it that. It's a beautiful primer on cannabis. And of course, we're going to hear that song in this episode. All right. So I got a bowl packed. You got a bowl packed. Look under your seats, everybody. There's a packed bowl for you. Get a packed bowl. You get a packed bowl. But <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, I'm here. If you're not, we've been in your homes. We've been <laughs> in your homes. <laughs> we, we pulled a late Santa Claus. Uh, there's also a little mushrooms for you. Uh, call back to an earlier episode. Uh, but if you are looking down and you don't see a beautiful packed bowl or anything ready to go, that's cool. It's fine. It's not a problem. Deep breath. You can hit pause, use that time at your leisure to roll a joint, to split a blunt, to pack a bowl, to pack a bong, to smoke a bong, to dab a dab in your endabulating machine. And then, easy peasy, when you come back, we'll be ready. If you're ready. For another great great moment in weed history. We are here with Nyambe McIntosh, the youngest daughter of the legendary Peter Tosh and the founder of the Peter Tosh Foundation. Nyambe, welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. Thank you so much for the introduction and thank you for having me. I was hoping you could start just by telling us about your own personal relationship with your father. What are your memories of him? I am the youngest of 10 children. And so ironically, although I I have this capacity to take care of his legacy and carry it on, I have very few memories of him. A lot of the, the memories I have are really the stories that people have told me. And he has this kind of stoic and serious personality to the public, but many people don't know that he is just really a peace-loving, kind spirit. And my mom would always say that he's just one of the the funniest people that she's ever, ever been around. And so as you were growing up, getting a lot of the information through stories from other people that knew him, what was the image of him beyond being a musical icon or a political icon? Many people don't know that when they Google Peter Tosh and you see him with this spliff in his mouth, probably about 90% of the pictures. The reality is that he is someone that really talked the talk and, and really walked the walk when it comes to fighting for legalization because it's not a concept that it was uh, accepted at all at that time. And, and he faced a lot of police brutality and was often targeted because of his stance. He really pushed against the system. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And we thought it would be good to start this episode with just a very short sort of history of cannabis in Jamaica and how it informed the Rastafari movement, how it informed reggae music, and of course, how all of that informed Peter Tosh's life and and work. Cannabis culture in Jamaica actually long predates the Rastafari movement in the wake of a successful slave rebellion in 1838, local plantation owners started shipping in indentured servants from East India. So trying to replace the labor 
not labor, but the forced labor and slave labor that they had lost in this rebellion with indentured servants. These indentured servants from East India brought with them seeds for a medicinal plant that they called ganja. Yep. Shout out East India. Shout out ganja. <laughs> this is some of my brethren, my ancestors. <laughs> Glad to know they're in the mix here. <laughs> Let me explain this to you. <laughs> we explain it. Love it. <laughs> That is a Sanskrit word for hemp or hemp resin. And 80 years later, Jamaica boasts one of the oldest cannabis cultivation traditions outside of Morocco and India and some of these older traditions. Rastafari is really a fight against colonialism. Jamaica had been colonized by the by the British at this point in time, and the whole entire African identity was expected to mirror the colonizers. And so their religion, which was Christianity, the followers were really starting to have an awakening, like, why are we worshiping this white Jesus and following this religion that really has nothing to do with our identity? We are Africans from the African continent. And so it was really about finding their roots. But during that time, followers of Rastafari were often persecuted. And for the uninitiated, could you describe the spiritual beliefs of Rastafarianism Rastafarianism is truly not the terminology. They don't like to add the ism on. As my father would say, we don't deal my with mistake. we don't deal with <laughs> isms and schisms because of colonialism and imperialism. Right. So <laughs> but, Rastafari. Um, yes, but it's really a, a very simple ideologies and the concept of I and I, where instead of saying you and I, which kind of creates separatism, I and I is really they see each other as equals. Also, liberty is this idea of vitality, and so doing everything to to maintain vitality. And so it's living naturally, but also a consciousness, a, a, a dedication to being more conscious of the world around you and what's going on. All right. I think it's time to light one up uh, <laughs> in, in, in light of that explanation. <laughs> uh, seconded. I didn't know there was a smoke session. Y'all didn't tell me that part. This show is just a smoke session with some discussion of cannabis history. <laughs> Let me see what I have. Oh. No, that's just CBD, not the same. Not the same. <laughs> not, the same. <laughs> not bad, but not the same. <laughs> oh, well, to up our, up our history quotient a little bit, we, we found some interesting connections to the early roots of Rastafari and cannabis. One of the earliest proponents of Rastafari, sometimes called the first Rasta, was Leonard Percival Howell. And he actually locked into... Uh, black nationalist ideas in Harlem in the 1930s when Marcus Garvey was there teaching. And for us, that's a very interesting time period because we've done a whole episode about the jazz scene in Harlem in the 30s and how much cannabis was a part of that. So in that whole swirling world of the Harlem Renaissance comes this idea that that gentleman was actually deported out of the United States back to Jamaica, where he was from. He started going door to door talking about this set of spiritual beliefs and was jailed for it, was released from prison. And in 1940, he established something called Pinnacle, which was a 500 acre community of about a thousand Rastas, one of the real early communities around this belief. They grew 
cannabis alongside all their other yams and greens and and crops and were using cannabis as part of what they called these reasonings where they would gather smoke pretty large amounts of cannabis from every account I've read. And instead of having a dogmatic spiritual belief that comes down from a book and the word and is unchanging, these were sessions to discuss these beliefs and and share ideas. Yes, yes, yes. The ideology and and the practices were, were very communal. It's something that I think a lot of people can actually relate to. People often identify cannabis as like a social, as we would say in Jamaica um, or within the Rastafari culture, is really reasoning amongst friends. You know, it's it's having that dialogue, and oftentimes even people that I find outside of the Rastafari faith, the conversations are to kind of come to a deeper understanding about things around us. Of course, there is a relationship between Rastafari and the roots of Judaism. There's a lot of shared terminology, Babylon, Zion, things like that. But I don't think that a lot of people really understand the connection there between these two faith systems. So could you break it down for us in some terms? And then our our resident Jewish historian here being stuck in that his two cents as well. Um, well, although followers of Rastafari left the Christian church, they still kept the book, the Bible. So they still follow the holy book. And that's where you'll see kind of similarities between other spiritual practices. I know that some Rastas believe that the first cannabis grew on King Solomon's grave. Yes. They think of the whaler's line, another brother Moses come across the Red Sea. These these connections are deep. There's belief that Black people represent one of the lost tribes of Israel. So, you know, this is a relatively new spiritual belief, but with very old roots. And just kind of round out the story a little bit, you know, this community pinnacle that we talked about was constantly facing oppression and was raided and ultimately disbanded by the government of Jamaica in in 1958, towards the end of the colonial period there. So we often get this idea through the media and even through some of reggae culture as it's corporatized and brought to us in the wider world that It's sort of this happy-go-lucky way of life, but it was a reaction against oppression that also begat more oppression. Exactly. As I said, my father always had ganja on hand, and because of that was targeted. That was what police would use to pull him over and to harass him and to arrest him. And of course, we know that in Jamaica, cannabis has now been legalized in the last couple of years. So can you comment on what the post-colonial cultural environment of Jamaica looks like today? I can't talk about the post-colonial aspect without mentioning the Maroons, the group of Africans who pretty much rebelled and used guerrilla warfare, really, in order to survive and went up into the mountains. And so the British tried, you know, treaty after treaty to to say, you know, if you guys turn yourselves in, you know, we're going to free you. And they're like, well, we're already free in the mountains, you know. So start off as like 1,500 Africans to this day, there still is um, a compound of Maroons that have survived through colonialism. Marcus Gavi, which is mentioned, he's actually direct lineage from from the Maroons. And so you'll find that there is where some of those tenets and the spirituality came from. When we get into colonialism or post-colonialism, as far as cannabis goes, there's still a stigma. It's a, it's a global stigma. And it's only now that more and more people are understanding its medicinal and spiritual values and that the follow of Rastafari, you know, 
actually <laughs> were saying something, you know, they actually had some values into what is into what they were saying. Even when we look at my father's iconic song, Legalize It, which was written back in 1976, where he's like, you know, it's good for asthma. It's good for glaucoma. It's only recently that we've seen universities actually come out with studies to kind of validate what my father was saying back in the 70s. Yeah, it's kind of infuriating to see people say, huh, turns (laughs) out this thing is a medicinal miracle. You're like, yeah, we've been fucking saying that. Exactly. Turns out the guy who was standing in a giant field of this plant, holding this plant, holding <laughs> this plant, may have known oh my more God. about this plant than a bunch of bad <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I think that, that beautifully brings us, uh, I think we have a better understanding of the world that Peter Tosh was born into. Uh, he was born in, in 1944 on the south coast of Jamaica. He grew up in a tin roof shack. His family fished and grew food to sustain themselves. He was uh, recognized as a, as a talented singer and musician very early, like at the age of three or four in the Pentecostal church. This was sort of the outlet for music. The only place he could play the piano was going into church. And so music and religion have this connection, but it is this colonial religion, as you mentioned. And in in tracing Peter Tosh's journey towards Rastafari, we we know that in in 1959, at, at age 15, he hitchhikes from where he lives, this sort of remote coastal community, to Trenchtown in Kingston, which is a very inner city, very economically depressed area. This is where he meets for the first time Bob Marley and Bunny Livingston. They form the Whalers and they actually put out their first record. And then at age 22, that is when uh, Peter Tosh uh, begins to learn and adopt the tenets of Rastafari. And of course, the, the Whalers would go on to become international musical icons. Yes, they toured the world as reggae icons and, and were recognized as the Whalers for many years. It wasn't until Chris Blackwell became managing the, the Whalers and then changed it to Bob Marley and the Whalers. The The reality is that they, they equally contributed to the writing, the composition of the music. And in fact, because my father taught Bob how to play the guitar, some would say that that he uh, contributed the most to a lot of the compositions. Colorism really is why Chris Blackwell decided to kind of push Bob to the front. And so with that, my father decided that he didn't want to be a background vocalist in 1974 is when he left the Whalers and, and started his own his own band. And shortly after, released his own album in 1976, Legalize It. To jump back just a little bit and discuss this 
relationship between Bob Marley and Peter Tosh. A lot of people recognize Bob Marley as the ambassador for Jamaican culture without realizing that, in fact, this was a label decision to select him as the front-facing person in the band because he was lighter-skinned, white father, black mother, something that's more marketable to an American audience. So can you comment a little bit on the difference that these two men represented for Jamaican culture? Bob really connects to the song, you know, when we think of One Love, you know, he was this kind of easygoing, peace-loving individual. And my father was someone who did not hold his tongue at all. He spoke up at any given point against the system and would have a spliff wherever he went, which automatically made him a target. And not only that practice, but his his consistent voice to speak up against injustice and corruption. But it's not something that people wanted to always accept, understand, or deal with. He was labeled as aggressive or, or disgruntled when it, he really was just a passionate man that wanted to get the truth out. And I think when we talk about stigmas around cannabis, and how they still exist today and how they exist even in places where it's now legal, we also need to contextualize that at this time, walking around with a spliff in Jamaica meant getting arrested and beaten by the police frequently. That's just something that happened to Peter Tosh throughout his life. And when we talk about his militancy, we're talking about a time in Jamaica where politics was on the edge of civil war. To be commenting on that and participating in that also was quite dangerous. These weren't academic discussions. These were often gun battles in the street. I want to read a couple of quotes of Peter Tosh's about cannabis because he saw these human rights violations happening in society through the prism of cannabis often. He often used it as a way to make people understand the role of the government in suppressing all sorts of beliefs and activities. Um, And so one of the things he said once from stage, and I'd love to hear your reactions, both of you, is not smoking herb is violating my constitutional rights. And to be humiliated, aggravated, and brutalized for smoking herb is totally degrading. I think that really speaks to his commitment to the fight for justice. In another interview, he was just like, smoking cannabis is a part of Black culture and really specifically just African culture. And he's like, how can you take a man away from his culture? We can recognize everyone else's religious and spiritual practices, uh, but it's very important that we understand that that the plant for me is just that. It's my human right to consume. Yeah. And, you know, I really love this idea of living protest. You know, I I think that a lot of cannabis activists feel this way in that smoking publicly, smoking freely, owning your love for the plant and your relationship with the plant, despite what society might think, is the protest. That is the activism that so many of us Engaging. One of the great things about being a cannabis activist, no matter the time or place, on the one hand, we are always fighting against these injustices, but we can also promote the benefits of this incredible plant, something that Peter Tosh also did throughout his life. Uh, Abdullah spoke earlier about how seemingly prescient some of the things he had to say about specific medical conditions are. And uh, another quote he had about cannabis is... This is the work of the creator. It contains spiritual botanical agents. It is tetrahydrocannabinol, 
antivirus, anti-trichnosis, and antidote. And I think we all know he meant antidote for so many of the things that ail us as a society, not just these medical conditions. And of course, this whole idea coalesces in his first solo album uh, with the single and the title, Legalize It. And of course, the iconic cover photo of Peter Tosh in a huge cannabis field at the time uh, was for many people the first time seeing a photo like that. Yeah. And and for me, being his daughter and kind of growing up with that song and only recently finding, you know, that interview that you that you spoke of. I wasn't there. I was five when he passed away. So when I when I when you get to see him using the terminology that, you know, scientists are using around the endocannabinoid system and uh, the benefits of of cannabis, you know, it's he's not just some Rasta guy, you know, singing about weed, but really was deeply immersed in in learning about the benefits and understanding how cannabis interacts with the human body. Yeah. And also in a feat of branding, he coined a phrase that has lasted decades and will last decades more because he simplified it, legalize it. Mm-hmm. It is that thing that is so crucial in all of our lives. It's like we don't even have to say its name, right? Because it is a state of mind in a lot of ways. And so, you know, as we see this wave of legalization, Bean and I have sort of, you know, been at every party that we can when a state is bringing in new legalization. Invariably, his song will come on. That's the song that they will play to say, hey, we won this one. And for whatever you might want to say about legalization in the United States, I don't know if he would look at the corporatization of cannabis and be like, oh, this is what I meant when I said legalize it. But on the other hand, we are seeing less people getting arrested, more marijuana convictions and arrests getting thrown out. We are seeing the type of progress that we want, less people being stopped and frisked on the street for that stuff, right? So what do you think he would think if he saw his song playing today in this context? Well, he would definitely take full credit for just all of the progress that has been made across, um, you know, America and across the globe. There's actually an interview where, forget what year Spain had legalized uh, cannabis, but he was, uh, the interviewer mentioned it to him and he was like, yeah, I did that, you know, because <laughs> he had recently <laughs> had performed in, in Spain. But he's also someone who's able to understand that this world exists with this dichotomy where we have all of this progress being made within the criminal justice system and the regulations around it. But then at the same time, he would want to see it just more accessible. Most people in my community go to dispensary and all of the taxes, they're just like, I don't think I want to pay this much for for cannabis. So it's not as accessible to, to black and brown people. So he'd very much um, be aware of that and be for shifting towards less regulations around who has access to the plant, who can grow it, who can sell it, and more supportive of co-op model and just like a farmer's market type of model where the consumer can choose who they want to spend with freely. And it just be like an open market that particularly has a lot of black and brown people. Yeah. And if you're in California, it's called a sesh and there's probably one within a half mile of your house going <laughs> on. You don't need to go to the dispensary. <laughs> and they may be uh they may be playing a remix of the song called Don't Legalize It, but that's <laughs> I did want to run down a few interesting things we learned about the album and the song, one of which is just sort of a mind blower. 
some of the initial sessions for the Legalize It album were in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, yes. <laughs> what? At the yeah. time, literally possibly the most repressive place in the United States for cannabis. For a lot of reasons, we can all imagine the sessions were then quickly moved back to Jamaica. So <laughs> shout out Oklahoma, now a hotbed of at least medical cannabis. The song was banned from the radio in Jamaica. It was banned from many, many radio stations around the world at a time when radio was king in terms of breaking music and artists. And uh, this did not bother Peter Tosh. He said, the more they ban this record, the more people are going to want to hear it. I talk on behalf of all those who smoke herb around the world. It is for their rights and their protection from police hostility because it is not me alone who has been brutalized. He definitely has always been a voice for the people and and, and made a point to, to highlight that it's not just Black people who smoke cannabis, but, you know, lawyers, doctors, judges smoke it too. And this is, this fight is really for, you know, humankind. And we, we also uh, uncovered a story that, that perhaps the uh, and I am a great lover of weed puns. And your father was a genius of of puns, like calling the system the shitstem. Yeah, downpression instead of oppression. He really was a brilliant wordsmith in that way. And in case you haven't heard our show before, Bean and Stock sort of thrives in this tradition of weed punnery uh, as an OG weed journalist. <laughs> so I will just say the seed money for the album Legalize It, according to this story <laughs> from the producer of the album, was that the, the money came from a, a smuggling run, importing Jamaican cannabis into the United States, uh, sort of a one-off smuggling run from, from this story, provided the money that uh, was used to produce the album and to spread this message all over the world. Yes, that is, that is the story. As seed money as <laughs> as you perfectly coined it <laughs> so so is is this true as far as you know i mean you know this is a little bit legendary i'm sure this is the account of of one person who tells the story this way how much truth do you think there is to that how likely is it that that's the business they were engaged in to fund that album. Right. Well, my father definitely wasn't a dealer. He gave away, he just gave away weed. <laughs> that wasn't really how um, he functioned. But definitely I've met the producer of the album and have heard this story and he stands by it. I, I wasn't there, you know, <laughs> so I can only, um, <laughs> I can only take, uh, take in and, and ex take his word for it. The next big moment in Peter Tosh's life I want to talk about with you is this One Love Peace concert in, in 1978. We, we spoke a bit about the political strife in the country at that time. This was a concert held in the run-up to an election. It was shortly after a uh, assassination attempt on Bob Marley. Uh, it was seen by many different people as, on the one hand, uh, a chance to bring the country together, and on the other hand, a way to paper over these differences and and try to maintain these oppressive systems from being challenged. And we really see the different views of Bob Marley and Peter Tosh and how they approach this concert. Bob Marley famously performed uh, shortly after being shot himself and, and this assassination attempt. He brought these two political leaders together on stage, held both their hands, put their hands together. I'm not so good at talking. 
but I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. Well, I'm trying to say, could we have, could we have up here on stage here the presence of Mr. Michael Mann and Mr. Edward Seattle? I just want to shake hands and show the people that we're going to meet them right. We're going to unite. We're going to meet them right. We got to unite. And then Peter Tosh came to perform. And he had a very different idea. He took the stage with his band. He waved a giant spliff around, which was incredibly provocative at the time. And he launched into a speech where he sort of denounced this all as a feel-good spectacle. The members of parliament must come together. If not dealing with the people and the suffering class, car police still out there brutalized poor people for what? A little draw herb. See? Every time you go to country, me have your fret till me reach back on my yard. To buy a liquor draw herb. And me personally, if it was for me alone, every police station lock up and police to sleep and yard all up in wife. You know no. He goes on to light this joint that electrifies the crowd, and then he denounces the war on Ganja. He denounces the police for beating him and many other people, and in essence uses this opportunity to continue to push for his social justice agenda and and really uh, strikes out as the kind of artist that he's going to continue to be no matter what the consequences. And as he would say, to have the truth in your possession, one can be sentenced to death. And shortly after that, he was arrested, targeted, obviously, for his cannabis, and then nearly beaten to death. He had to play dead in order to stop the beating from happening. Many believe that it was retaliation from the government because of his his rant during the One Love Peace concert. It was also at this same concert when he caught the attention of Mick Jagger from the Rolling Stones. And this sort of potential or seeming opportunity opened up to take things bigger, take things global with this band who was sort of giving their endorsement. But of course, this leads into a a story in which he was staying at Keith Richards' house in Jamaica and sort of was irked by the fact that, you know, this outsider had been able to make all of this money uh, and that, you know, he, despite years of, of work, of creative work, was still, uh, you know, marginalized uh, monetarily, essentially, right? Uh, can you comment a little bit on that relationship? I don't think a lot of people even realize that the Rolling Stones and Peter Tosh had this sort of re- relationship and toured together. So can you tell us that story from your perspective? You know, the Rolling Stones were really, really moved by by his performance, being these icons in, in rock and roll and in their right, you know, using their music to to kind of fight against the system, so to speak. They saw that in Peter and they um, they actually had a, a great relationship for a while. And I think that it was more so, um, you know, cultural differences. You know, they talked about in an interview of him having a goat in their house, but it was because it was a pet goat. <laughs> it was like the same way that you, <laughs> you see a dog, you know, and you welcome that into your house. Mm-hmm. Um, my father loved animals. You know, he was a, a, a huge animal lover. 
forever and had pet birds and just always kind of like feeding the dogs and and then eventually had this pet goat that I remember the Rolling Stones kind of talking about like what the hell is you know this this goat doing in our house um and then they had a difference of you know and then there was issues about um, compensation and, and what that looked like. Unfortunately, I think everything happens for a reason. And, and that, you know, relationship ended up, they kind of went their separate ways, but they definitely had um, an amazing ex- experience together performing on Saturday Night Live. Once again, here's Peter Tosh. <laughs> Them legalized marijuana, yeah. <laughs> Um, doing their single Walk and Don't Look Back. Now if your first lover lets you down There's something that can't done Tell him what you're gonna do Don't hear your baby love Remember what's been done This was a period of time when musicians outside of Jamaica, in ways both heartfelt and mercenary, were kind of jumping on the reggae bandwagon. One story that I think we should highlight uh, and quickly move on is Eric Clapton, of course, uh, recorded I Shot the Sheriff, kind of went down to Jamaica. He is a known racist, screamed racist shit from stage drunkenly. And so I just do love a story of him going down to Jamaica, trying to smoke weed with uh, Peter Tosh and basically greening out uh, big time. (laughs) (laughs) Falling Wow. Shout down. Shout, Shout down. 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 <laughs> yeah, scream down. Right. Mama, mama, them old papa say they charge him for smoke ganja. If me never jump defense, them old me too. So hilarious i actually didn't hear the details of that i know he did the cover of um you know i shot the sheriff but i didn't hear that aspect of of the story so (laughs) i don't think he was the only one to suffer that uh that fate but certainly one who who deserved it and then we should talk after um after that that really vicious beating that you described from the police uh peter tush actually 
withdrew from public life for a number of years. He was working on his music. He was smoking a lot of cannabis. He was, in essence, really trying to reassess after all of these incredibly intense experiences that he'd had. And then in 1987, he's ready to come back with a, with a new album called No Nuclear War. He's again at the forefront of, of the social justice issues. Uh, but that is also the point at which tragedy uh, strikes him. Yes. On September 11th, uh, 1987, there was a um, home invasion where um, a gentleman that he knew actually did an attempt robbery and ended up murdering my father, along with three other people that were at the house at his time and injuring other people. Unfortunately, he lost his life, but no nuclear war remarkably uh, won a Grammy in 1988. As far as the reverberations of this death of an icon, your father really represented all facets of Jamaican society and he represented it to the world with a deep understanding of how it worked, what its flaws were and what its people yearned for in a lot of ways. So can you describe how the Jamaican nation, how the Jamaican people reacted to this death and how that has reverberations up until today? Yeah, the, the death of my father was a loss to, a major loss to Jamaican culture, reggae music, just people all over the world. He had toured the world at that point and had left an impact on so many people. And, and his funeral, I actually remember going to his funeral when I was five years old. There was thousands, thousands and thousands of people that showed up to mourn his death, as he would say that, you know, he doesn't really deal with death and understands in Rastafari community and, and spirituality that the spirit still lives, although the flesh is gone. And so people around around the globe still have his music. They still recognize that they have a piece of him with them forever. And his music definitely lives on. Thank you for sharing that. I know that's a difficult memory. I just want to kind of bring things to to now, uh, 25 years after your father's passing, uh, we live in a world where cannabis is being legalized in many places, and yet in many places this war on cannabis goes on without cease, and many of the other social justice issues that your father fought for are unresolved, and the world we live in seems as as hostile to them as ever in certain ways. I'm, I'm wondering if you can uh, relate your brother Jawara's experiences and, and how they relate to your father's life and legacy for you. I can, from one death to a, another death. It was um, actually 2013, my, my father's youngest son, follower of Rastafari, uh, his name is Jawara but his musically goes by Tosh One, uh, was arrested for cannabis possession in New Jersey. Many people don't know New Jersey has some of the um, kind of highest mass incarceration rates in the country. After being arrested, he ended up staying incarcerated for about three months before just having a hearing. And honestly, I thought that this would be something that we can put behind us. He's never been involved with the criminal justice system before, but the family turned up to support him at, at the hearing. And that's when we heard the prosecution offer a, a 20-year plea deal. It wasn't until then that I realized that this was something bigger. Fortunately, my brother made bail about 
about um, three months later, so the end of 2013, but then went back and forth to to New Jersey for pretrial motions, you know, them offering like, hey, you know, what about 15 years? You know, this is this is the best we can do. You know, you you should probably take it because if we do go to trial, you know, they're going to hit you with the full 20 years. Then he'll go to another meeting and they'll say, well, what about, you know, what about 10 years? And then finally it got down to, to five years with consideration for the time served. And the prosecution was pretty much saying that you'll most likely, you know, serve a year or his lawyers were saying that. And so we were really torn, you know, torn between fighting for what we believed in and recognized as our human right to consume this plant and fighting against the system. My brother, being a follower of Rastafari, but also a father of four, didn't really want to risk being out of his children's life for 20 years. And so he took the plea. And at the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, he turned himself into Bergen County Jail. And after a month of being incarcerated, he was brutally attacked by another inmate, suffering a, a, a tremendous brain injury. I remember the day we got to the hospital, we were even told that we didn't even have the right to visit him because he was a ward of the state. We were told that he was in the ICU fighting for his life and that we had to call the prison because the prison had hierarchy over the hospital. So at a time when my brother needed us the most, we were told that we weren't allowed to kind of be by his side. But fortunately, I, I believe it was the, the Tosh name that um, allowed them to, to make an exception. When we got into the hospital room, he had half of his locks shaved off from an emergency medical procedure to kind of save his life, as well as, um, you know, a brace on his neck and his face was bruised up. But then he had a handcuff on his ankle and he was surrounded by correctional officers as if he was a threat to someone and kind of like treated like like an animal. And that's when I knew that, you know, our lives were forever changed. And it's sad that my father had gone through his fight and face a tremendous amount of injustice in his life to really make sure that others wouldn't have to really face and deal with that consequence. But unfortunately, it hit home again in in my brother. And we ended up taking my brother home. We were able to get him released um, because of his injuries, but he was incapacitated, needed 24-hour care. We got him to Boston. He was in the hospital in Boston for about 500 days. And Finally, we took him home and and my mom and I cared for him until um, 2020, where unfortunately he succumbed to his injuries. What my family has gone through and, and really being on the front lines of not only fighting for justice, but being an exemplar of of what the harms of the war on drugs really is like we embody that. And and unfortunately, people hear words like felon and and criminal around cannabis and lose sight of the fact that these are, you know, brothers, fathers, sisters, sons that are being affected and families that are being affected. And so um, we continue to fight um, the fight for justice to, to share his story and why it's so important that um, all cannabis offenders are are released from prison, but why we need a, to revamp our criminal justice system to begin with. Yeah. Wow. That is an incredible tragedy that your family dealt with so, so recently. You have our deepest condolences. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I think it's really important for people to realize that this is also a part of the Tosh legacy, right? As standing as an exemplar of these injustices. 
And people need to know that story uh, just as much as they need to know about the life and work of Peter Tosh. So thank you so much for, for sharing and just our deepest sadness shared and, and our condolences about this uh, you know tragedy that your family has faced. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anything in terms of the of the work that the foundation is doing right now that you want to specifically highlight or invite people to uh, engage with? Yeah, we want the Justice for Jawara initiative is really about bringing awareness to my brother's story. And we have a partnership with the um, Last Prisoner Project to show why, you know, it's significant to release all cannabis prisoners. And also we have our Legalize It initiative, which is really geared toward not only educating people about the legacy and history of of cannabis culture pertaining to Rastafari and the science benefits, but we have a partnership with minorities for medical marijuana. We are making sure that those that have been affected by the war on drugs have an opportunity to really enter into this new emerging multi-billion dollar industry. And so we're doing um, expungements clinics as well as um, you know boot camps to, to really support individuals with providing them technical skills to get into the cannabis industry. Oh, that's fantastic. We definitely support the Last Prisoner Project. Really cool to hear that, you know, that, that you're, you're doing something in collaboration with them as well. And yeah, I, I think that people don't realize that even as cannabis is legalized, the drug war continues. It is still very, very dangerous to be a person who cultivates cannabis, who transports cannabis, who buys, sells, or consumes, or stores cannabis in most of the country, in most of the world. So it's not over yet. I know a lot of people are already taking the victory lap, or have taken several in the last few years. Uh, But of course, the battle continues. We have not truly legalized cannabis, uh, you know, as far as the tenets of Peter Tosh's message went. So there's a lot left to be done. So just to close us out, uh, I wanted to ask you to share, if you could, one song from your father's catalog that do you think represents him the most, that represents his legacy the best, is the one that should play us out, is the one that anybody who wants to hold up their fist in a lit spliff in the memory of Peter Tosh should listen to? I would definitely say Old Bumba Clot. Starts off by saying that I, I came upon this land to guide and teach my fellow man. But one thing I can't overstand is, you know, basically why they don't listen. We've been dealing with a lot as a people and continue in the fight. And so sometimes you just got to let out a few cuss words to really just keep fighting. <laughs> yes. Well, we will smoke to that. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing, I just an image I kind of want wanted to, to, to leave with because I think when we talk about Peter Tosh's story and a lot of stories on this podcast, we're constantly making the point cannabis culture is much bigger than most people think. His life for many people listening to this podcast, uh, the religious aspects may seem different. The cultural backgrounds, the economic conditions that he grew up in. And I just always like to remind everyone we all do share this one thing that is important. We all are cannabis consumers. We all care about this plant and just such a small detail. But the fact that Peter Tosh was very into riding a unicycle, to me, the most stonerish of all transportation 
somehow just gave me a way to relate across all of those differences and be like, yeah, man, we're, we're all stoners here. <laughs> we all love this plant. And it does. It is the healing of the nations, as they say. It's definitely the healing of the nation. Great story to end off on. <laughs> well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.